let's go ahead and grab our seats. Once again, glad you are here this morning in this room, joining us online. So glad you're here. If you don't know me already, my name is Steve, and I'm the senior pastor here. And right now we are in a series of sermons called More Than Meets the Eye, where we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And I've just simply had a great time in this series. I've even had kind of these aha moments in my own life where kind of the broader picture that we live in has come into clearer view. Um, And after all, in this letter, that's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to pull back the curtain of the seen world and to show us what's unseen with its influence and interplay on this world and in our lives, including God and Jesus Christ, yes, but also those darker spiritual forces. And so my deep hope is that we've all had some of those moments, some of those aha moments as we've been peering into what more is meets the eye. So how did you complete that statement? The whole world wants blank. Um, How many of you said peace? All right. Uh, how, How many of you said political stability? Raise your hands high. Not a soul. You're heartless people. Um, what about, how many said freedom? Nobody, really. Okay. Those are some of the most popular answers. And I'm sure you've got, obviously, there's a lot more answers going on than I could anticipate or that have gone in and surveys in the past. And Gallup actually shares our curiosity about this question. Um, so they do a world poll across 120, 160 countries to get a sense where people's leanings are at. And they found that the whole world wants, and what the whole world wants, has shifted over the last 100 years. The great global dream has changed from wanting peace and freedom and family to simply wanting a good job. The global trend across urban and rural settings Uh, irrespective of socioeconomic standing. And it didn't matter whether they were in a developed country or a developing country. And at the time that this study was done, the then CEO of Gallup, Jim Clifton, put it this way. He said this. He said, humans used to desire love, money, food, shelter, safety, peace, and freedom more than anything else. The last 30 years have changed us. Now what they want is a good job. Now, I'm sure there's lots of facets as to why people responded that way. Um, But at some level, it seems that people care more about work than anything else. Or at the very least, work has become one of the most important aspects in our life. For most adults, work takes up far more time than any other activity, especially the ones who've made their work to care for children and the house. For most students, work is the main driving reasons for them working at school, picking a college, getting a degree. For many retired folks, the loss of a job is a massive adjustment to find work that is now meaningful and feels significant. So would you be surprised to learn that God is equally as concerned about our work? Not just the sort of jobs that we do, the sort of employment that we might have, but the actual work that we do and the influence we have therein. 
And would you be even more surprised that God is concerned about your work, no matter what level it may be? Whether it's blue collar or white collar, high pain, low pain, highly esteemed, barely noticed, studying, working with your mind, working with your hands. God cares so much about whether we, what, whatever work we do that he even addressed forced work in slaves. To give some practical direction for their situation and what difference their faith in Jesus would make in their particular context. And so what I want you to do, I want you to open up your Bible or that app on your, bio, on your phone. Find your way to Paul's section on work in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, where we're going to see this in operation, and we're going to see two things, the work that we actually do at work and the power we have at work. And if you reach for one of those blue Bibles around you, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, is on page 979. And as you get there, I'm going to call on Zach Turley to come on up. He's going to read this section for us. So let's give, us, give it our attention. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if we don't deal with slavery and antiquity, you're not going to hear anything I say here this morning, right? I mean... How can this possibly be good? Much less that if Paul may be speaking into our own work and job situations. So, so let, me, let me explain here. Bondservant um, is just another translation of slave in the Greek. Um, they're not trying to obscure anything or clean up the image of the Bible here. The reason for that different translation is simply because slavery differed in antiquity from the 19th century race-based slavery that we might be more, more familiar with in this country's history. And the translators simply wanted to make sure that we knew there was a different system of slavery than what immediately comes to our mind, especially because these verses were some of the very ones used very damagingly in support of slavery. Generally, people became slaves in antiquity because of debt or being a prisoner of war. So they were basically working off what they owed, right? Irrespective of ethnicity, race, or any inherent gifting. And slaves made up about 10% of the population in the Roman Empire. About 30% of the population actually in the capital of Rome itself. And so slavery as an institution was incredibly prevalent as part of the ancient world, economically, socially, politically. And the enslaved did some of the very same work that freed men and women did, and even did it with them side by side, including medicine and education, 
but usually it involves manual labor for the most part. That was the idea that, w- that was going around in antiquity about that. Uh, but as you can well imagine, it, it actually functioned with a far nastier edge to it. I mean, it was still slavery, where one person owned and dominated another person. Violence and threats were a part and parcel of an enslaved experience of their master. And even being a freed slave kind of hung on you as a moniker, um, much like being an ex-convict does today, um, with continual obligations that they had to give to their former masters because usually they still depended on them for work. And so why doesn't Paul just come out and denounce it? Um, Why does he seem to give even tacit approval with these kinds of instructions that we just heard? Well, I would tell you that I think he's trying to deal with the practicality of it. It's been estimated that in the church, about 20% of Gentile Christians were slaves. One-fifth of the population within the churches. And so he's trying to give help this large chunk of the church to put into context what their faith means in this very um, difficult situation they're facing, this, this hardship that they face at work. But in doing that, and how he does it, actually plants the seeds for its destruction among Christians. I mean, did you notice how there weren't any buttresses of slavery based on the Old Testament, like he did with children and parents just last week, like he did with marriage uh, just the week before that. That's significant because it communicates God's lack of ongoing sanction or even its viability among God's people. Or did you notice this verse in there? How Paul invokes God's justice and how he'll right all the wrongs. That's significant for pointing out God's keen interest in what is going on. His determination to right it in his wisdom and in his timeline and by whatever means he sees fit. And did you also notice what he says to masters here? He puts masters and slaves on the same level based on their faith in Jesus, which was totally unheard of in the day. Usually, it was assumed that slaves were inferior, and so they were treated as such. And so this is significant for humanizing slaves in the eyes of the slaves themselves and in the eyes of their masters. And on top of that, do any of us really think that this is the only thing that Paul has to say about slavery? In 1 Corinthians 7, he urges slaves to win their freedom, to gain their freedom, to buy back their freedom, because that's preferable. In Galatians 3, he affirms the, the full equality of slaves and masters in the church and how they were to relate with one another on that level playing field. And the whole letter of Philemon. Philemon was a man who owned a slave named Onesimus who had run away, and Paul basically strong-arms him there to reconcile with Onesimus and even release him because he's a fellow Christian. And Paul would very much appreciate Onesimus' help while he's in prison. In fact, it's rumored that Onesimus became the bishop of the church here in Ephesus, which means he probably took spiritual oversight for some of those who originally heard this letter for the first time. 
if they live to see the day. You see, what Paul actually does here in Ephesians 6 is, is subversive. He affirms how God has made all people in his image. And so he raises the value and points out the humanity of the slave. And that destroys the power dynamics necessary to keep a system like that going. And I never really appreciated this until I read this book, uh, Roll, Jordan, Roll, uh, by Professor Genovese. Uh, It's considered a landmark history of the South and slavery for how Professor Genovese draws on a wide range of first-hand accounts of slavery in oral records, family papers, journals from the enslaved, contemporary newspapers at the time, and plantation records. He scours them all. And what Professor Genovese tries to do is explain how slavery was overturned in the 19th century America because he's interested in it as a Marxist. And he wants to explain why there was this rise in the proletariat. But what he makes abundantly clear in all of his investigations from all those first-hand accounts is how the humanizing of the enslaved led to its downfall, actually. Professor Genovese shows how the slave church from the Baptists and the Methodists helped the enslaved to hear that they were made in God's image. And it bolstered their sense of self and value even in their own eyes. And it became undeniable to the slaveholders as the enslaved displayed this newfound dignity before God. To the point that you can hear the torture in the slaveholders' souls in their very own letter. They could not deny it. Now, that doesn't go to say that there weren't cruel slaveholders or overseers or managers. I'm not saying that. And that doesn't go to say that the enslaved, you know, being counted as a three-fifths person for congressional representation didn't happen at that time either. I'm not saying that. It's just this very radical idea of a person being made in God's image. It eroded this institution of slavery, and it did it at a very personal level of the enslaved and the slaveholder in the 19th century. That are the very seeds that Paul plants in our passage, as well as others in the New Testament. The institution of slavery simply can't exist where Jesus is. And the recognition of every person being made in God's image is practiced because it humanizes everyone involved. And that also has the power to destroy all other kinds of unjust, dehumanizing enterprises in our day. You know, racism and exploitation, sexualization and abuse and the termination of human life. This whole section is Paul inserting humanity and dignity into what was an inhumane work environment which will end up destroying it. But in the process, he actually speaks into our work that has far greater humanity involved than a slave's. Whether that is work as a student, an employee, a retiree working in other spaces, And what we're supposed to see in this section is how we're to work at work and how we're to use the power we have at work. I mean, here again, listen how Paul reframes work in what had to be the worst working conditions 
uh, imaginable. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Slaves had a reputation for being lazy or just doing the bare minimum, especially when no one was looking, which is understandable under forced labor. And so Paul reframes a work ethic to take into work, one that gives a new model for working with hope and with motivation. For one, this work was to be done with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. This isn't about taking a posture of, you know, cowering and enduring abuse as much as it is a call to honor the position and responsibility that the boss has as a posture of deference. Fear and trembling was the very posture that Paul reports to have taken when he first came to the church in Corinth. It's the very posture that the church in Corinth took to a a leader of the wider church when they received him. And it's the very posture that we're to take before God for transformation to have its full effect in us. And so this, this this is a posture of deference and respect to another. Much like Paul has been calling for all throughout Ephesians. Uh, In our marriages that we talked about a few weeks ago, between parents and children that we talked about last week, that Neil did a great job with. And Paul extends this posture for us to the one whom we answer to in our work, whether that is a boss, a supervisor, a a teacher or a professor, a, a client, whomever. The actual performance of our work is to be done not by way of eye service as people pleasers, The performance of our work, the the kind of work that we do, is to be done irrespective of who's watching, who's around us. Whether it's evaluated or not, whether it's thanked or not, whether we're given credit or not. We're to do an honest day's work without diluting it with personal business. We're to work in studying with a sincere effort and not cutting corners and cheating. We're to work and bill for what we actually do and submit expenses we actually spent for work. Why? Well, it's not just a bunch of oughts and shoulds. It's because of followers of Christ and beloved children of God, we live in a greater cosmic reality when it comes to our work. I mean, we actually work doing the will of the Lord God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord. Having faith in Jesus means that we ultimately work for a very different boss, one higher up. No matter what work we do, there's one that we ultimately answer to for how we work, what we produce, how we interact with colleagues and clients. How we work is one with sincerity, reflecting God's values and purposes. What we produce is is a creational good in the very work that we do, as part of God's common grace to all and deliver good to humanity. And how we interact with clients and colleagues is respectful and dignified, 
a posture that they are made in God's image. Think of it this way. In any work we do, there's an organizational chart that we have, either in our mind or it's official, of who answers to who, what departments are where. And at a very basic level, what we tend to see, what we tend to perceive, is work that's like this. That's what we see, and we tend to work from that for that specific person that we answer to, right? To get the grade, to get the evaluation that we want, to get the project done, to to deliver the service we're supposed to. But there's more than meets the eye to the organizational chart for every follower of Jesus. The actual org chart that you and I are in, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, looks more like this. God is the real CEO the real professor in that class, the real client we're serving, the real teacher, the real principal, the real coach. So whose opinion should we try to please? I mean, whose values are we actually supposed to live by? Whose opinion actually matters about billable hours, workload versus rest, and effort at work? And make no mistake about it, God is the one we actually want there because he will right any wrongs in our work and correct any wrongs that we've done in our work. Because remember, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive from the Lord. You see, what Paul's telling us is that we work at our work with God as our ultimate boss. We have to have a vision of that, that there's someone above us in the org chart that we actually answer to. So how does that change your sense of work? How might you work differently? How might you conceive of what you produce differently as a part of God's delivery system of good in this world? How might you value your work differently? Reducing it from an ultimate in life or raising it from a necessary evil? Paul is saying, we work at our work with God as our ultimate boss. But also inherent in our work is power and influence. And certainly that is true in the master-slave dynamic. But it's equally true wherever we might work. We all have influence. We all have power, whether we want to admit it or not. It may be a formal power in a position or a title, or it may be an informal power in gifting or trust or relational connection. But make no mistake about it. We all have power. We all have influence at work. And here's how Paul reframes how we use our power at work. He says... Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, certainly, there's a recognition of having power does not make one superior, that God is above all those powers and the one that they have to answer to. That's all in there. That's all in there. And it's really important. But there's a key phrase in here that almost escapes notice. It's this one. Do the same to them. As slaves do for you masters, you, you do the same for them. That is radical. 
For God to call masters to do what their slaves did for them. Serve them, masters, with a sincere heart. Work with effort and don't play to the human audience. You know, look to God as one who's above the org chart. Or let me sum it up and put it in a little bit different. Use your advantages to advantage others. That's how we're supposed to use our power at work as followers of Christ. That's how our ultimate boss would have us use our power, use our influence that we, he's entrusted to us. We're not to rid ourselves of power, divest ourselves of influence. We're to use it to advantage others. To use what power and influence we do have to give people a chance or a voice that they might not otherwise get. To give appropriate access to resources and information they might not otherwise be privy to get. To make a trusted introduction to a person or a network that they can't get to on their own. To give help or perspective when they don't get those opportunities on their own. To take the blame for something when someone does it underneath our umbrella just because we can take the hit and they can't. To give credit publicly for something they've contributed to so as to enhance their standing. Do you get what I'm saying here? You see, the problem with power is that we tend to spend it on ourselves. And Paul tells us, look upward in that org chart. Look outward to the people around you to spend your influence on them and take risks on them. There are so many at FBC who do their jobs, do this in their jobs. There's lots of I could point out to you. So if you're looking for ideas and directions, maybe in your field, I could connect you with people to figure out how you can do this in your context. But one who immediately comes to my mind is Ray Rodriguez. Uh, Ray is a quiet and unassuming guy. He's worked here as an elder at FBC, giving oversight to the entire church. And he's always been a man who's, you know, always taking me to lunch and, and provided real encouragement to me and even kindly correcting me when I was not leading at my best, shall we say. But in the world of genetics and UC Davis, let me just, Ray is a monster, okay? I mean, he was part of developing the technology for splicing the gene. The technology is called PBR322, with R standing for, can you guess, Ray Rodriguez. And so he's rightly earned a lot of influence and a lot of power at UC Davis and STEM more broadly. And do you know what, how he spends his power and influence these days? He leverages it to help others. I can't tell you how many times I go to lunch with him and he's telling me about a grant that he's, you know, gotten to develop some research and his real motive is to get a group of lesser known biologists to take it over for him. Or how he just got together, you know, with a bunch of Latinas and talk about the challenges of, and blockades in academia for them and how he's publishing a paper with them to increase their standing. He just does that all the time. In fact, Ray was recently at Osaka University receiving an honor about being appointed as a collaborative professor there. And while he was there, he texted me this. He said, all my life I've been a dreamer of things far beyond my abilities. 
splicing a gene, right? Um, After coming to Christ, I learned to pray for my dreams to become a reality. But wait, there's a caveat. My dreams had to include others. My dreams or ambitions should help, not harm, those in my way. They should share in the blessings of my God-given dreams. I have seen this many times in my life. They don't know it, but I have 10 to 15 friends or colleagues here at Osaka U who are benefiting from God blessing my dreams. How cool is that? I love this church family because we have so many people who do this sort of thing without any fanfare, without any kind of look at me sort of mentality. But this is something that you and I can do as well. Because we have power and influence at work. First off, you have to recognize what kind of power and influence you do have. You have it. I know you do. You're too gifted. You're too lovable to not have it. Right? So what is it? What relational? Is it, is it natural gifting? Is it expertise? Is it title? Is it seniority? What is your power and influence right now? God has given you that as a trust, and so use it to advantage others at work. Figure out how you can give someone opportunity, help, a voice, a standing, how you can advantage them and maybe disadvantage yourselves, but advantage them in ways that they might not other get, and do it whether they say thanks or not. Do it simply because you have an ultimate boss over you who will favor you only as he can. You see, what Paul's telling us here, he's saying, when we work at work and how we use our power and influence at work, we do so with God as our ultimate boss. And I understand that this is a tall uh, order. Because this sort of thing isn't necessarily thanked or noticed or rewarded in work. Or worse yet, you know, we lose at work sometimes when we do this, right? And so, you know, I feel that. I mean, and I also feel how this can be a heavy burden, especially when things don't work out the way we want them to work out at work by doing this. But with Jesus, we can do this with joy. Um, With Jesus, we can work our work this way. We can use our power this way because, listen, only Jesus humanizes our work. He did it for slaves and masters, and he can do it for you and he can do it for me as well because only Jesus and with Jesus can we be brought to God as our Father, forgiven and freed, and so be able to look to him as an ultimate boss a loving and a good father as an ultimate boss who will receive our work. He sees all of it and he will notice all the sacrifices of how we've used our power, how we've worked, and he will use it for his purposes. And he will make sure that we are taken care of now or even if it's only in the age to come. So don't just get busy working at work because It's such an important aspect for us. Look to Jesus. 
as the one who died for your sin, rose for your life to have God as your Father. Do that so that when we work and then we use our power, we have an eye to please Him and not just who's immediately above us on that old chart. So let's pray, shall we? God, so often we cannot see beyond our boss, beyond the one that we answer to. And so, God, I pray you give us new eyes to see you as our heavenly Father. New hearts to appreciate how Jesus has swept us into your presence so that even the very work we do, the jobs we work, how we care for kids, how we study at school, what kind of work we're involved with in retirement, God, that we would do all of it with you as our audience, trusting that you see it all and you will walk with us in it and that you will even reward us one day because you are good and you are generous and you are just. And we'll trust you for this to happen because we call you our Father and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sing this with me. With every breath I long to follow Jesus For he has said that he will bring me home And day by day I know he will renew me Until I stand with joy before the throne To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, not I, but through Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. quite a promise that we have in that song that even when things are hard to do like maybe we heard something that felt hard this morning uh, christ is in us we can do these things with christ in us Um, that's good news it's a wonderful morning Uh, before we go uh, i just have a few things uh, for the church family to know and this is about the easter 
um, services coming up, the week, the Holy Week coming up. And so this is for our ears in this room and online and also for the person that you might know, a friend, a neighbor, a family member um, who might be wanting and actually hoping for an invitation um, to celebrate some of this Holy Week celebrations. And so let me tell you a little bit about the schedule. And this is going to be a lot of me talking. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to visually display it for you by moving across the stage. This is this point in time. Okay. And then I'll be moving this way. Okay. So this is this point in time. And then next Sunday is where we're going to start this. Okay. It's going to be Palm Sunday. And just want you to know, we're going to have the fronds and all that stuff. Uh, but we're also not going to have communion because we're going to celebrate it later in the week, which we'll get to. Okay. And, uh, so here we go. Then we're going to go to Good Friday is coming up next. Um, and on Good Friday, there's going to be a blood drive during the day. More on that later. Okay, a little bit later in the day, we're going to have Good Friday service. It's at 7.30. There's no child care provided. There is communion provided. And um, about the child care, we would love to have your kids join us, and um, they can be um, a little bit loud. That's fine with us. My kids will be some of those who will be loud. So be great to have you during that time. And also, again, we're going to have communion. And then, of course, we get to the big kahuna. Sorry, not quite yet. We get You could wake up on Saturday which is Holy Saturday, and you could go on a half-day um, doubt and deconstruction retreat. And I hope you're intrigued by that. It's at the end of Lent. It's a perfect time to celebrate something like this. And if you're intrigued by that, Connect Table, baby. You're going to find out more from there, and, uh, and you can sign up there as well. And then we get, of course, to Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday, 10 a.m., full of joy. You can't even imagine it. And uh, there's going to be a, a brunch that will be provided mostly by the people in this room. Again, another example of your generosity. You give money to this church. You give de- uh, deviled eggs to this church. Well done. Good job by you. And, uh, and of course, there will be the flower cross. And so if you want to bring a flower to decorate the flower cross, it is always such a blessing. Take some pictures in front of it as well. And so a plan to stay a little bit after Easter as well. So that is Easter for us. And then I'm going to go back to here, the blood drive. So the blood drive is happening on Good Friday. That's not by accident. Good Friday is a day where Christians, we remember and we celebrate the a blood that was poured out, blood that was spilled, blood that was given to us to give us life, to purify us, to sanctify us, to, again, to give us life. And that is a wonderful thing to think about. It's a wonderful thing to ponder. It's also a very powerful story to inhabit. And we try to do this all the time. We try to give our lives away for the sake of others. And on Good Friday, with the blood drive happening here at FBC, uh, we get a chance to do that in a very real, very practical way where we can give our blood, spill our blood so that someone else can have life. And that's not something to just say, like the stories abound of the people who receive blood. And um, it's not a, a little bit better life, but it's, it's a difference of no life versus life. Okay. And it is whatever, 20 minutes we're sitting here um, taking our blood. And I've sometimes been cynical about like, okay, where does this stuff go? I just give my blood and I expect it to go save a life. And it really, really does. And so it's an opportunity for us to do that. And if you want to, it's a sign up thing. So if you want to sign up for it, uh, please go to the connect table. We will get you signed up so you can participate in giving life to someone uh, participating in the story of Jesus. So um, that's the things I would like for you to know. And so I'd love for you to stand up church and receive this benediction before we go. May the God who created you in his image and has given you good work to do, whatever it might be, may that God this week give you the wisdom, give you the insight, and give you the power 
to do good and be a blessing to the world and those around you. Amen. We'll see you next week.